Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Without mincing words, today's case is the most notorious murder in Canadian history. Christine and Peter Demeter were the epitome of post-war Canadian dreamers, stylish, good-looking, successful, and rich. The expansive and expensive Demeter Mansion in Arendelle was the epitome of the post-war Canadian dream home, a five-bedroom split-level bungalow backing out onto an in-ground pool with a scenic view of the Credit River. On a quiet summer's night, Peter Demeter lifted the home's two-car garage door to reveal a scene that would turn the dream into a nightmare. Lying there was Christine's battered and lifeless body. Mississauga police didn't need to search far for a prime suspect and zeroed in on the dead woman's husband. The only problem? He had an airtight alibi. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Season 3, Episode 13, Night Moves Part 1, The Murder of Christine Demeter. Wednesday, July 18th, 1973, Town of Mississauga. The Mercedes-Benz SL300 pulled into the driveway of the Demeter House at the end of Dundas Crescent, just before 10 p.m. The small luxury coupé was packed with passengers. Dr. Sybil Brewer was in the passenger seat. A quartet of teenage girls and a dog named Beelzebub were crammed into the back seat. Peter Demeter was in the driver's seat. The group was returning from an evening shopping excursion at Yorkdale Mall. Peter hit the button for the automatic garage door. As the door swung slowly up, the car's headlights cast two hard spots onto a gruesome scene. The figure of Peter's wife, Christine Demeter, sprawled face down on the floor of the garage next to the couple's blood-spattered Cadillac. Christine's skull was caved in, and a pool of blood had spread across the concrete floor beneath her. This deadly tableau lifted the curtain on Canada's most notorious murder trial and a stranger-than-fiction criminal saga that would unfold for decades. Peter Demeter, Hungarian-born, Canadian-made. Horatio Alger could have penned the tale of Peter's early life. It was a story of bootstraps pulled up and noses to grindstones, one that charted its hero's ascension from rags to riches through intelligence, pluck, and sheer force of will. Young Peter rose from the ashes of World War II, literally. At twelve, a Russian bomb tore his Budapest apartment into dust and rubble, burying him and his father. Peter survived only to find the scions of former bourgeoisie behind the eight ball in Soviet-occupied post-war Hungary. Peter ducked the Iron Curtain for the free market fortunes of 1950s Vienna. He became a reporter for Radio Free Europe and, according to Peter's own myth-making, a covert CIA operative. The young man eventually went west to Canada, founded a construction company, and became the embodiment of the Canadian post-war dream. End title? Roll credits? Not so fast. 
If the first half of Peter Demeter's life was a heroic journey, the second was a Greek tragedy full of hubristic decisions, rotten luck, and canny personal strengths that metastasize into flaws. True to tragedy, things ended badly. Can we pinpoint the moment where the Wheel of Fortune turned for Peter Demeter? Maybe it was on a trip back to Vienna at a swing-in party in 1965 when 32-year-old Peter saw 20-year-old Marina Hunt across a crowded room. Marina was everything ambitious, social-climbing Peter Demeter desired. She was tall, blonde, beautiful, worldly, rich through her stepfather, and well-connected in Viennese society. In a love letter to Marina, Peter said that, after her, any other woman would only be second best in his heart. After a year of dating, he proposed to her. She turned him down flat. Peter's anger became violence, and he slapped her. After their fractious breakup, the main squeeze of an Austrian film producer caught Peter's eye, another statuesque blonde named Christina Ferrari. Peter coveted the things that other men, especially powerful men, coveted. And other men coveted Christine. He chased her and got her. Christine was Austrian-born and seven years Peter's junior. A teenage bride, mother, and divorcee, all before the age of 21, she ditched her husband and child and ran off to Vienna to parlay her good looks into work as a fashion model. Her modeling career never took off, but it gave her an entryway into the Viennese jet set. It was enough to put her in the orbit of an ambitious expat from Canada who was looking for a trophy wife to stow on his mantle. After a whirlwind romance, Peter and Christine were engaged. The prize for second best, a one-way plane ticket across the Atlantic to Peter's adopted home of Toronto. In their modest Lawrence Avenue apartment, Christine traded in the poolside life of a European chateau for the life of a middle-class Canadian housefrau. In between cleaning the apartment, shopping at the grocery store, and going to the laundromat, she thumbed magazines on fashion and interior decorating. And yet, if life on the sunny side of Easy Street was Christine's ultimate goal, she'd hitched her wagon to the right star. Peter's business, Eden Gardens Limited, was taking off. With its Queen Street headquarters facing the BDI of the new Toronto City Hall, the construction company took aging and derelict residential properties, demolished them, and built brand-spanking new homes in their stead. Peter Demeter was building for others the Canadian dream he'd built for himself. In spite of their financial success, Christine and Peter's relationship was rocky from the start. In the company of friends, Peter was fond of making jokes at Christine's expense. The punchlines were the same. Christine was lazy. Christine lacked ambition. Christine was stupid. When he left town for a trip to Montreal's Expo 67, Christine got him back by staying behind in Toronto and entertaining the company of a handsome soccer player. Peter found out, and his jealousy erupted into physical violence. Christine showed up at the door of their mutual friends, David and Alice Maylith, with bruises on her face and arms. The Maylis offered to pay her way back to Vienna, but she stayed put in Toronto with Peter. They were married at Toronto City Hall in November later that year.
Peter would have preferred to stay in the hustle and bustle of Toronto. It was Christine who pushed for the newlyweds to move to the quiet of the suburbs. She chose the closest thing the newly minted town of Mississauga had to an old-world chateau, the former home of Dr. Beaumont Dixie at the end of Dundas Crescent in Arendale. The front was strictly an 1800s farmhouse, and the Demeters quickly set to work building a back extension that brought the number of bedrooms up to five and added a swimming pool in the backyard. The house backed onto the snaking Credit River and looked across the ravine to the campus of Arendale College. Outwardly, Peter and Christine were the living postcard of the suburban dream. Inwardly, the secrets of the house told a very different story altogether. The birth of their daughter Andrea in 1970 did not quell Peter's casual cruelty toward Christine, as he openly questioned Andrea's paternity to both Christine and the couple's friends. Secretly, he was looking for an exit from their marriage. Just after Andrea was born, Peter made a cross-Atlantic order of 25 red roses and had them delivered to Marina Hunt's Vienna residence for her 25th birthday, a rose for each year of her life. The nosegays were enough to intrigue his former flame, and they took up regular correspondence. Over the next couple of years, Peter sent Marina gifts alongside his letters, jewelry, handbags, and checks for amounts between $300 and $1,000. In 1972, Peter flew back to Vienna, where the two reunited for the first time since 1967. Marina was hooked, and the two met again in Montreal for a six-day tryst in June of 1973, a month before Christine's murder. The day Christine Demeter died was a busy one in the Demeter house. The couple was entertaining an international coterie of house guests, Dr. Sybil Brewer, Peter's friend from Connecticut, and her daughter, the daughter's Canadian friend, and Dr. Brewer's two nieces from Germany. In the evening, Peter hosted a group of real estate agents to haggle over the condominium townhouse development Eden's Gardens was cooking up in Toronto. Between the neighbor and the gardener dropping by, and the three girls from down the street using the swimming pool, the house was a hive of activity from morning to night. After dinner, however, the house emptied out. The Demeter's German house guests were on the hunt for authentic Canadian moccasins to show off back home and a plan was concocted to find them at Yorkdale Shopping Centre. Peter eagerly offered to drive the group, saying he wanted to get Christine a name-day present. July 24th is the feast day of St. Christina, a 4th-century martyr who survived numerous attempts by her father to wring her Christian beliefs out of her with torture and violence. The shoppers piled into the bends and drove out to Yorkdale, leaving Christine and Andrea alone in the house. Peter even insisted on taking their dog Beelzebub on the shopping expedition. Hours later, the shopping party returned to the house to find Christine dead in the garage. Andrea was safe and sound, watching television inside. Christine had not been sexually assaulted, there was no evidence of a break-in, and nothing had been taken from the house. Was it someone she knew or a stranger? Did she invite them into the house, or was she taken by surprise? Why was Christine inside the garage? Was she lured there, or was she meeting someone? All unclear. You can bet, though, that she wasn't going out with Andrea still in the house, 
And besides, fashion-conscious Christine was wearing a purple velvet dressing gown and slippers instead of street clothes. Though he had an airtight alibi at the time of the killing, police quickly zeroed in on Peter Demeter as their prime suspect. The grieving husband? Maybe not. Demeter offered a $10,000 reward for the capture of his wife's killer, but he didn't shell out a dime for a tombstone for her grave. What's more, Peter didn't let her murder stop him from scoring punchlines at Christine's expense, even working the details of her murder into a shtick. His favorite wisecrack? Who would have thought Christine had so much brains? Peter did have two timeless motives for wanting Christine dead, money and another woman. He had a $1 million life insurance policy on Christine, and he'd recently gotten back together with his number one dream girl, Marina Hunt. A dead Christine would have yielded added savings by avoiding a costly divorce settlement. Yes, doing away with Christine would be a financially prudent manner of getting back the one that got away. On August 17, 1973, Mississauga police detectives arrested Peter Demeter for engineering the murder of Christine Demeter. In February 1974, while Peter awaited trial, Marina Hunt landed in Mississauga, and the two shacked up in the house on Dundas Crescent, where Christine had been killed. Immediately after her mother's death, Andrew had been sent to live with Stephen Demeter, Peter's psychoanalyst cousin and his schoolteacher wife, Marjorie. So it was just Marina and Peter playing house. Marina's arrival whipped the already frothy media coverage into a frenzy. The added ingredients of wealth, sex, and beauty elevated the trial from mundane murder to celebrity circus. The Demeter coverage was lurid because the facts themselves were lurid. A writer didn't need to embellish to sensationalize the Demeter case. And yet, it was a case that still invited exploitation. Cheesecake photos of Marina and Christine splashed in halftones across the front pages of Toronto newspapers. Peter and Marina's love letters were quoted verbatim, and dishy details of Peter and Christine's sex lives, inter- and extramarital, were spilled in ink. The Demeter case wrestled for headlines next to the marital friction of Canada's other notorious couple, Pierre and Margaret Trudeau. If there was no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation, for Peter and Margaret and Christine and Peter, their bedrooms were more than welcome in the newspapers of the nation. The Demeter murder was a prime example of the public's love-hate relationship with celebrity, at once luxuriating in the reflective glow of their wealth and beauty, and giddily tearing them to shreds for being wealthy and beautiful. As the trial approached, the Crown and the defense made moves to tip the scales in their favor. The defense made a motion to shift the venue out of Brampton Courthouse and away from Peel Region. The presumptive new venue would be Toronto, an advantage for the defense. But the move backfired when the trial was instead shifted to the newly opened London courthouse in Middlesex County, where the jury pool was much less cosmopolitan than Metro Toronto. The trial began on September 23, 1974, with jury selection. The process was drawn out and contentious from the very start. The Crown attorneys working the prosecution side were Leo McGuigan and John Greenwood. 
Their strategy was to stock the jury with older working-class people who might take their pick of Peter's personality traits to resent. His youth, his wealth, his good looks, his immigrant background, his philandering. A jury of his peers? For Peter, not so much. On the first day of the trial, Peter's lawyers, Joe Pomerant and Andy Greenspan, argued that the entire roster of 82 prospective jurors should be disqualified because the demographic makeup of the list did not reflect that of Middlesex County as a whole. Presiding Justice Campbell Grant denied the motion. The prosecution's case set out to establish Peter's motive for having his wife killed. A string of witnesses from the Demeter's neighbor, Joanna Tennant, to Dr. Sybil Brewer, to Marina Hunt herself, charted the rekindling of Peter and Marina's romance in October 1970. Tennant had testified that Christine had rifled through Peter's study and found Marina's love letters to Peter. Christine angrily confronted Peter on his return from their Montreal rendezvous in June 1973 and went to consult a divorce lawyer. Dr. Brewer testified that Peter seesawed from a desire to split with Christine and a desire to stay with the mother of his child. The prosecution had their own answer. Peter's solution to his dilemma was to hire a killer to off Christine, freeing him to marry Marina, save Boku bucks on a costly divorce, and cash in on Christine's million-dollar life insurance policy in the process. The prosecution was aided in their theory by their star witness, Zaba Zilagi. Zaba was a pizza store manager and fellow Hungarian emigre who'd acted in his five years in Canada as Peter's friend, drinking buddy, driver, semi-permanent house guest, and most trusted confidant. At the trial, Zaba testified that, for the entire five-year stretch of Peter and Christine's marriage, Peter frequently concocted schemes to murder Christine that ran the gamut of practicality from improbable to harebrained. Some of Peter's bright ideas included shoving her down the stairs, hitting her over the head and running her over with a car, setting her car on fire with her locked inside, electrocuting her in the swimming pool, faking a break-in, shooting Christine, then shooting himself somewhere non-vital, hiring a contract killer to off Christine, then have Zalagi off the killer, driving their car into some construction equipment with Christine in the passenger seat, and blowing up her car by having her drive over some shotgun shells. But all this was just talk. Peter liked to talk, especially to Zaba. After Christine's murder, Mississauga police convinced Zaba to wear a wire to record his conversations with Peter. The hours of tepid conversations danced around the subject of Christine's murder, and at times, Peter cagily implied that he was acquainted with her killer, but Peter never outright confessed to Zaba. Joe Pomerant and Eddie Greenspan, Peter's defense attorneys, argued the tapes were inadmissible as evidence, because the budget-minded Mississauga detectives had taped over whole conversations they deemed irrelevant, and the police hadn't gotten a warrant for the wire. The second issue was a tricky one. The Protection of Privacy Act, requiring a warrant for wiretapping and the use of electronic listening devices by police, was passed only after the investigation had concluded, but before the Demeter trial began. Justice Grant ruled that the law could not be retroactively applied to the investigation and the tapes were admitted into evidence. The dry legal wrangling of the Demeter case, however, could not have prepared anyone for the stunning game of legal chess 
that lawyers on both sides were playing behind the scenes. On November 12, 1974, the defense called Ferenc Frank Stark, an ex-French legionnaire and contractor who'd done some work for Eden's Gardens Limited. Stark testified that, in 1971, Christine Demeter offered him $3,000 for the purchase of two items, a 22 caliber hunting rifle and an alibi which Stark would furnish for an accomplice who would shoot Peter Demeter dead. That accomplice? Peter's own buddy, Zaba Silagi. For the defense, Stark's testimony was a stiff one-two to the prosecution's case. At once, they quashed the credibility of the prosecution's star witness, and they muddied the waters of Peter's motive by painting Christine as a less-than-saintly victim. What the defense didn't know was that Frank Stark was secretly playing for both sides. Under cross-examination from the prosecution, Stark had another story to tell. In late 1972, Peter Demeter met with Stark at the Blue Orchid Tavern on Bloor Street. Peter complained about being trapped in his marriage, and hey, wouldn't it be nice if some accident were to befall his wife? Stark, a man who could read between the lines, put the word out around the Toronto construction sites that he was looking for a fellow Hungarian named Imri Olezniak, nicknamed Kashka, the duck, for the man's considerable girth in the waddly way it made him walk. The duck reached out, and Stark set up a meeting with Peter Demeter. According to Stark, Peter met the duck in a strip mall parking lot in early 1973. They hatched a plot to lure Christine to one of Peter's townhouses on Dawes Avenue with a line about delivering some building plans. The duck would be lying in wait to throw unsuspecting Christine down the basement stairs, the plot was set in motion, but greed intervened. The duck demanded more money for the killing. The extra money never came through, and when Christine arrived at the townhouse on Dawes Avenue, she handed the blueprints to a strange fat man and left without a scratch, if slightly puzzled by the errand. The blueprints, drawn up by Eden's Gardens Limited, were later found stuffed in an easy chair at the home the duck shared with his girlfriend, Maria Viznici. Ms. Nietzsche testified that the duck had come home with the plans and unrolled it to find a wad of money stuffed inside. Had the persistent Peter and the duck tried a second time to murder Christine on July 18th with greater success? The duck wasn't squawking. He'd migrated back to Hungary, and police there were trying to pin down his whereabouts. Instead, the Crown introduced another shadowy figure to the courtroom to finger the duck as the killer and Peter as his string puller. The man was literally shrouded in a bag with eyes and mouth cut out, and he was called to the stand as Mr. X to hide his true identity. Mr. X testified that he saw the duck at Woodbine Racetrack on the day of Christine's murder, and he was dropping $300 and $400 bets on the ponies. When Mr. X saw the duck a week later, he was nervous and emotional. Another witness, Laszlo Link, an acquaintance of the ducks, also testified that in spring of 1973, just after the botched Dawes Avenue plot, a strange, well-dressed man arrived at their door. The man gave Link a message to pass on to the duck. Get the job done or return my money, 
Link's wife corroborated the story. Both Mr. and Mrs. Link identified the well-dressed man with the cryptic message in the courtroom as Peter Demeter. Frank Stark's testimony wasn't the knockout blow the defense had hoped for, but they continued to offer the jury a number of alternative scenarios for Christine's murder. Mississauga sex killer Henry Robert Williams was one such alternative. A few months before the trial, in August 1974, Williams was picked up for the rape and attempted murder of a 16-year-old British tourist. The victim had hitched a ride with Williams from the Clarkson Go station. He drove her to a field near the foot of Winston Churchill Boulevard, where he hit her over the head with a rock and sexually assaulted her. He then stabbed her and left her for dead. She survived, and after police arrested Williams, they tied him to the murders of two other women. His two teenage victims had been found in the months after Christine's murder. Constance Dickey, age 19, was found on the campus of Arendelle College, across the ravine from the Demeter House, and Arendelle Secondary School student Netta Novak, age 18, whose decomposed body was found in Streetsville Cemetery just a short drive north of Arendelle. While all three victims' connections to the village of Arendelle were compelling, Christine's murder did not match William's M.O. His victims were younger, killed out in the open, and had been sexually assaulted. Besides which, Williams was on the clock at the Streetsville brickmaking plant where he worked on the night of Christine's murder, though he did admit on the stand that he doctors his time cards in the past is if the Demeter case wasn't already lousy with seedy criminal types, Joseph DiNardo, a former boxer, appeared for the defense and offered a new candidate for Christine's killer, Laszlo Eper. On May 16, 1973, just a couple of months before Christine's murder, Eper escaped from Collins Bay Penitentiary, where he was serving a life sentence for the shooting of a provincial police officer. According to DiNardo, Eper had boasted to him about having sexual relations with Christine and that she'd asked him to kill Peter for her. If Eper had any part in Christine Demeter's murder, he wasn't talking. Six weeks after Christine's death, he was spotted making an illegal turn onto Manning Avenue in Toronto. Police officers gave chase and he was boxed in just north of Bloor. Eper ditched his car and ran south back across Bloor with three officers hot on his heels. Eper wheeled and fired at his pursuers, narrowly missing them. Constable Forrester dove to the ground and returned fire, hitting Eper in the head. Any light Laszlo Eper could have shed on the Christine Demeter killing died with him that day on Manning Avenue. This did, however, pose a new scenario for Christine's murder, one where she was burned not by her abusive husband, but by her dance with the devil named Laszlo Eper. Donardo's testimony, however, was made during a voir dire session, with the jury excused from the courtroom. Justice Grant later ruled that Donardo's testimony was inadmissible hearsay, and the jury never heard the name Laszlo Eper at all. The untimely deaths of important witnesses in the Demeter case didn't end with Laszlo Eper. Hungarian police finally collared Imri the Duck Olezniak and stuck him in prison, while his extradition to Canada was ironed out. He died there four months later, before he could testify at the Peter Demeter trial. The killing of Christine Demeter was, still is, 
and probably forever will be, committed by person or persons unknown. None of the evidence was incontrovertible ironclad evidence showing that Peter pulled the strings to have Christine killed. Nevertheless, on December 5, 1974, the jury delivered a conviction for the crime of conspiracy to commit murder. Justice Grant sentenced Peter Demeter to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for ten years. His conviction closed the book on a marathon trial that clocked in at 51 days, making it the longest criminal trial in Canada at the time. The day after the trial ended, Marina Hunt packed her things, scooped up Beelzebub, and flew back to Vienna. This ends the trial of Peter Demeter for the murder of Christine Demeter. But Peter's story does not end there, not by a long shot. In the following decade, he would prove again and again that a little prison time couldn't keep the old boy down. He had more murders planned, and it would keep the name of Peter Demeter in the headlines for years to come. Stay tuned, dear listeners, for the shocking conclusion to the Demeter saga on the next episode of Mississauga Confidential. Want more tales of the city's darker side? We and Mississauga Confidential HQ are pleased to announce the publication of the Mississauga Confidential book. It contains 24 shocking tales of true crime, including stories not included in the podcast, as well as photos from each case. Beginning in December 2022, you can bag your own copy of the Mississauga Confidential book through the Heritage Mississauga website at heritagemississauga.com. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer, Research by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listeners, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.